Welcome to episode six of the New Renaissance Bookcast with me, David Lorimer, from the Scientific and Medical Network. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the writer Hermann Hesse, uh, using a biography and also a beautiful piece that he wrote on trees. So we'll start with the biography, and my title for my review is The Wanderer and His Shadow. This is a biography by Gunnar Decker published in 2018 by Harvard at 791 pages, so it's a long and comprehensive biography. It was Colin Wilson's Outsider that first put me on to Hermann Hesse. I read most of his famous novels, and in the 1980s, while teaching at Winchester College, I would set one of his books a year in my general studies class. The Prodigy, Damien, Steppenwolf, Siddhartha, or Nazis and Goldmund. My aim was to promote a degree of self-awareness at this crucial stage of adolescent development, and the first two books spoke particularly to that, the first being based on high parental expectations from a gifted young man, a situation in which many pupils found themselves, and the second was more about the development of spiritual awareness, but also with respect to light and dark, good and evil. This magisterial biography draws on new sources, including recently discovered correspondence between Hesse and his analyst, Joseph Lang. Hesse's output includes 20 volumes of collected works, but also 44,000 letters, we don't write letters anymore, most of them as yet unedited. Hesse's poem, Steps, symbolises his life and metamorphosis. Just as every blossom fades, and all youth yields to old age, so every stage of life, each flower of wisdom, and every virtue reaches its prime and cannot last forever. Whenever life calls, the heart must be ready to leave and make a fresh start, and to enter bravely into different and new liaisons. And a magic inhabits every new beginning, protecting us and helping us to live. Here one can see the wanderer represented, as well as the call for renewal, often precipitated by an inner tension that can also arise due to outer pressures, for instance in the stifling pietism of his parents, confronted with his independent and rebellious spirit. He saw himself as a writer from an early age, and this gave him a real sense of being alive. One of his great inspirations was Goethe, with his view of nature as a living entity and his understanding of transformative processes. These also occur in Goethe's life, for instance the Italian journey, which Hesse also made, and are reflected in the poem above. Hesse also admired how Goethe integrated different aspects of his personality within himself, most dramatically represented in Faust. The cultivation of mutually opposing forces became for Hesse the ideal for his own passage of life, the biographer writes. Hesse also admired Goethe's transcendence of nationalism. Goethe succeeded in integrating mutually opposing forces to a greater extent than Hesse, especially in his relations with women and attitude to his body and sexuality. For Hesse, this never quite comes together and is represented in the contrast between the ascetic Nazis and the sensual Goldmund even though they are the closest of friends. The outbreak of the First World War and the publication during the conflict of Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West raised profound questions about values and spirituality 
as expressed in European culture. This brings in themes from his masterpiece The Glass Bead Game about what the spirit can do to counteract naked force and how the individual intellectual can survive in a world devoid of spirituality. Hesse became increasingly critical of German nationalists, who also turned against him with his more universal outlook. His concern was that war destroys the soul and reduces people to friends or foes. Hesse's meeting with Joseph Lang in 1916 was an important turning point, partly because of the latter's interest in Gnosticism, but also therapeutically. His novel, inspired by the dualism of Gnosticism, Damien, came out in 1919. Although he had a deep interest in Taoism and harmony with nature, Hesse chose to portray aspects of the spiritual quest or pilgrimage for the self through the Indian figure of Siddhartha. The European context, however, was, quote, that of an intellectual and spiritual reorientation following the complete collapse of the old system of values, unquote. The author points out that Siddhartha is also about the recovery of individual experience in place of external knowledge, as well as an attempt to synthesize Eastern and Western thinking, as represented by Buddha and Heraclitus. The river and ferryman play an important role here. At this distance, the hostile reaction on the book's publication takes one aback. Critics felt a lack of sympathetic identification with the conditions in post-war Germany. Hesse's point, though, is different. We desire to have something given to us from outside that we can only attain within ourselves through our own dedication, he writes. We have to impart meaning to our own lives. The author identifies common spiritual themes that bonded Hesse with Hugo Ball and Emmy Hemmings in 1920, and he writes the demonic and exorcism, libidinous urges and asceticism, the sacred and the increasing banality of mass culture, the task of the intellectual between social criticism and the timeless evocation of meaningfulness, the monastic life, religion and atheism, the role played by sacrifice for faith, guilt and atonement, the creation of heretics by institutions, the neuroses of modern humans, pantheism and mysticism, these themes reappear in his later work and in his struggle with the disintegration of the spirit and the senses, and they're strangely relevant still today. In the end, it seems that Hesse achieved a degree of inner peace, partly by guarding his solitude and avoiding public events, including the receipt of the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1946. The last chapter is entitled The Old Man of the Mountains, a sign in Hesse's window carried the following message. By the time a person has grown old and has done his bit, he is entitled to acquaint himself with death in peace and quiet. He doesn't need people. He knows them well, and he's had enough of them. What he needs is peace. It's not very seemly to come calling on such a person and pester him with chit-chat. Better just to walk on past his house like, like it belongs to nobody. Hesse's daily routine in the last few months of his life included passing an acacia tree where he would always pull with all his might on a dead branch, remarking, it's still holding. His final poem, Creaking of a Bent Branch, reflects this sentiment. A splintered, bent branch, hanging there for years on end, creaking its song dryly in the wind, 
bereft of leaf and bark, bare, bleached and tired of living too long, or taking too long to die. Its song sounds harsh and dogged, it sounds defiant and secretly scared. Just last one more summer, just one more winter through. It seems appropriate to finish with the last verse of Steps. Maybe death's hour, too, will send out this newborn towards new realms. Life's call to us will never end. Come then, my heart, take your leave and fare you well. I'm now going to read some reflections by Hermann Hesse on trees, which I think are extraordinarily beautiful and profound. For me, trees have always been the most penetrating preachers. I revere them when they live in tribes and families, in forests and groves. And even more, I revere them when they stand alone. They are like lonely persons, not like hermits who have stolen away out of some weakness, but like great solitary men, like Beethoven and Nietzsche. In their highest boughs the world rustles, their roots rest in infinity, but they do not lose themselves there. They struggle with all the force of their lives for one thing only, to fulfil themselves according to their own laws, to build up their own form, to represent themselves. Nothing is holier, nothing is more exemplary than a beautiful strong tree. When a tree is cut down and reveals its naked death wound to the sun, one can read its whole history in the luminous inscribed disc of its trunk. In the rings of its years, its scars, all the struggle, all the suffering, all the sickness, all the happiness and prosperity stand truly written. The narrow years and the luxurious years, the attacks withstood, the storms endured. And every young farm boy knows that the hardest and noblest wood has the narrowest rings, that high on the mountains and in continuing danger, the most indestructible, the strongest, the ideal trees grow. Trees are sanctuaries. Whoever knows how to speak to them, whoever knows how to listen to them, can learn the truth. They do not preach learning and precepts. They preach, undeterred by particulars, the ancient law of life. A tree says, A kernel is hidden in me, a spark, a thought. I am life from eternal life. The attempt and the risk that the eternal mother took with me is unique. Unique to the forms and veins of my skin. Unique the smallest play of leaves in my branches and the smallest scar on my bark. I was made to form and reveal the eternal in my smallest special detail. A tree says, my strength is trust. I know nothing about my fathers. I know nothing about the thousand children that every year spring out of me. I live out the secret of my seed to the very end, and I care for nothing else. I trust that God is in me. I trust that my labour is holy. Out of this trust I live. When we are stricken and cannot bear our lives any longer, then a tree has something to say to us. Be still, be still, look at me. Life is not easy, life is not difficult. Those are childish thoughts. Home is neither here nor there. Home is within you, or home is nowhere at all. A longing to wander tears my heart when I hear trees rustling in the wind at evening. If one listens to them silently for a long time, this longing reveals its kernel, its meaning. 
it's not so much a matter of escaping from one's suffering, although it may seem to be so. It's a longing for home, for a memory of the mother, for new metaphors for life. It leads home. Every path leads homeward. Every step is birth. Every step is death. Every grave is mother. So the tree rustles in the evening when we stand uneasy before our own childish thoughts. Trees have long thoughts, long breathing and restful, just as they have longer lives than ours. They are wiser than we are as long as we do not listen to them. But when we have learned how to listen to trees, then the brevity and the quickness and the childlike hastiness of our thoughts achieve an incomparable joy. Whoever has learned how to listen to trees no longer wants to be a tree. He wants to be nothing except what he is. That is home. That is happiness. So there you are. There's two uh, reflections on Hermann Hesse. And next time I shall be reviewing some books on science and spirituality. So until then, thank you for listening.